Hello. This month, Henry Sandin guides us through some of the history of the Worcester Royal Porcelain Company. We reminisce about Matt Munro, and we feature a brand new novelette written specially for us. Oh, and did I mention cricket bats? That too, in this New Year's edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. I'm Jenny, and with me in the studio today are... Brian, Sue, and Patrick. And John Plush, who is our producer, director, composer, and technical extraordinaire. We start this month's edition with the voice of Angela Lanyon, reading one of her short stories, written especially by Angela for the Talking Magazine. It's set in a Cornish fishing village, a tale of mysterious goings-on, despicable deeds, and just a hint of romance. Part one of Surprise Inheritance. As Lucy opened the envelope, she never realised that her life was about to change. Three weeks later, she stopped the car on the brow of the hill and looked down at the Cornish village of Crickhaven. To the left lay the sparkling sea, and to the right the valley of the Afton. Straight ahead she could see the roofs of the house she had just inherited. At the time she had barely taken in the solicitor's information, but now, as she drove between the crumbling pillars and up the overgrown drive, it really sunk in. You have to live there for two years before the house finally becomes yours. Welcome to Raven's Wing. Nicholas, the caretaker, stood in the doorway. It's good to have someone living here again. Inspecting her property after she'd had tea, Lucy was struck by the chill in the house, despite the warmth outside. From the files she'd been given, she knew the house had a chequered history. Requisitioned over 70 years ago by the Ministry of Defence, it had since been a school, and then the headquarters of a fringe sect. For the last six months, Nicholas and his wife Janice had cared for it. The following morning, she intended to get to know the area. After all, this was where her family had come from, the family she had never known. When the morning came, the previous day's sun had been exchanged for gusts of sweeping rain. She abandoned her intention of walking to the village and took the car. You're never going to live there on your own, exclaimed Mrs Trewin when Lucy introduced herself in the village shop. She shuddered. It just needs doing up, Lucy, ever optimistic, replied. Always been an unlucky place, a voice mumbled from the back of the shop. Nasty, spooky place. You wouldn't catch me up there after dark. Now, Mum, don't you go upsetting the young lady. Mrs. Drewin turned back to Lucy. You don't want to take no notice of Mother. She's a proper doom merchant, always has been. You'll be right about doing it up. Good to have the family back, if you'll pardon me for saying so. By mid-morning, as so often happens in the West Country, the rain had gone and blue sky was showing through ragged clouds. She left the car and walked down to the little harbour which gave the place its name. A sheltering wall protected a few fishing boats drawn up on the slipway, and nearby Lucy spotted a gaily painted blue hut. In rough-cut letters across the roof it said, Café. 
Going inside, she heard the hiss of a coffee machine and through the clouds of steam, slim brown hands were laying out cups. Miss Raven! Goodness, she thought. Word gets round quickly. Yes, and you are? The steam parted. Winston, ma'am. Used to be a barista in London. Much nicer down here. Coffee? he inquired. While Lucy drank her coffee, Winston explained how he'd come down to Crickhaven for a holiday, helped out in the cafe during a rush of business on lifeboat day, and decided to stay. Less money, less hassle, he said with a smile. Mrs Trewin, good employer. I'm beginning to think Mrs Trewin runs most of the village, Lucy said. She'd noticed the name above the garage. Winston nodded. Her and the Pendines. They're mostly fishing. An holiday cottage. It's their boats, you see. He stopped short, and Lucy wondered what he had begun to say. Probably something about village rivalry. It was a small place, and she supposed there'd be competition for whatever trade there was. She knew from studying the map that it was a long way to Bodmin, the nearest town, and going back along the coast, the way she'd come, there wasn't much except a place advertising sea-fishing trips and diving tuition. Thanking him for the coffee, she wandered back towards her car, stopping to admire a small fishing boat, the saucy mermaid. A sunburnt young man with dark curly hair was busy on deck coiling ropes. He caught her eye and waved. Fancy a sea trip, my lovely, he called. Not today, thank you. From the big house, are you? He stopped what he was doing and jumped onto the hard. Thought you must be when I saw you coming out of the shop. Staying up there on your own, are you? That's what Nick says. Suddenly aware that she would be living in the public eye, Lucy shivered. It seemed everyone knew her business better than she did. Oh, you don't need to worry. We'll look after you. There's strange tales about the house. But when it's been empty so long, what can you expect? Heard at the shop and have you believe it's stuffed with ghosts and smugglers. It was the temple people what did it, dancing around the gardens at night. The file had mentioned them, the fringe group, pillars of the temple. They'd been there for twenty years and not long gone. Looking for treasure, I reckon they were. Toby Pendine, by the way. He put out his hand, grasped hers in a firm grip. Don't forget, if you're in trouble or need anything, we'll be glad to help. At least I know where I am, Lucy thought as she returned to the house. And so does everybody else by the sound of things. It was good to think she might find friends in the village, because she had to make up her mind about the caretaker. The solicitor had told her he would be employed by the estate for at least six months, if that was what she wanted, and Lucy decided that, at the moment, she did. Raven's Wing was early Victorian, a maze of rooms and a lot of it looking in desperate need of repair. Here and there, paper had been peeled from the wall, and in some of the attics, piles of jumble, boxes, old iron beds, and even tennis nets needed clearing out. Who on earth could make use of them? Left over from the time when it had been a school, she thought. That was after the war, when the Ministry of Defence no longer needed it. It was the wind that woke her. Getting up to close the window, Lucy glanced into the garden. Was it the intermittent moonlight, or had she really seen a dark figure cross the lawn and disappear into the trees? Mm -hmm.
Mmm, mysterious. But we'll have to wait until later to find out more about Lucy's intriguing bequest. Brian, meanwhile, has got very interested in another old building, this one in the heart of Worcester. News that an Italian restaurant in Friar Street is changing hands would have caused considerable excitement among certain residents in the thoroughfare eight centuries ago. Because Friar Street's finest building, indeed probably the city's finest half-timbered building, is one called Greyfriars, which most historians believe was once part of a Franciscan friary. The Franciscans, or Grey Friars, arrived in England in about 1224. They were an order of preachers founded by St Francis of Assisi, who lived near Umbria in central Italy, and no doubt partial to a cannelloni or two. So his followers would have jumped at the chance to wander around the road and try the new menu at Sugo Italian, where Galleria Italiana used to be. Unfortunately, they can't, because although their old home is still in situ, they are not. Later members of the order failed to maintain the high moral principles of its founders and began accepting houses and lands as gifts. Indeed, a ditty of the day ran, No baron or squire or knight of the shire lives half so well as a holy friar. The simple life had simply lost its attraction. So when Henry VIII seized the Franciscans' houses in the dissolution of 1538, the Municipal Corporation of Worcester bought Greyfriars. Today, a National Trust property, it stands at the heart of what might be called medieval Worcester, as a tribute to the efforts of a gentleman called Mr J. Matley Moore, who, together with his sister Elsie, restored it in the 1950s and 60s. Before that, Greyfriars had a very chequered past and was at one time among the city's worst slum properties. In fact, part of it actually fell into the street. Thankfully, those days are long gone, and tourists now have the opportunity to wander through an area along Friar Street and into New Street that is steeped in history. Unfortunately, one of the buildings no longer there is the old city jail, a companion to the former county jail in Castle Street. The city jail was built in 1824 on the corner of Friar Street and Union Street on land that was part of the old friary. It was designed by George Byfield, a specialist in prison architecture, and cost £12,578. It only held about 30 prisoners, and the post of governor was very much a sinecure. Indeed, it only had one, a William Griffiths, in its 45 years' existence. The main feature of the prison was the governor's house, where inmates frequently waited at table during his excellent dinner parties. One was so trusted he was allowed to light the retiring guest's home, but one night the prisoner decided to retire himself, carrying the governor's family plate with him. 
After that, Worcester City Jail was closed and the site bought by businessman William Laslett, who turned it into accommodation for the needy. And in 1912, almshouses were built, which still stand today. I wonder if the Italian Grey Friars had as much difficulty understanding the local builders working on their new home back in the 13th century as the spectators Melissa Kite did when she got her local builders to renovate her house last year. Sue has the story. The Albanian builders have started a turf war in my kitchen. The hostilities broke out suddenly. One minute the builders were building and the plumber was plumbing and the next minute the builders were shouting at the plumber and the plumber was looking helplessly at me to intervene. Only I couldn't intervene because A, the builders were shouting in Albanian and B, I would have no idea what they were on about even if they were speaking English because it was something to do with the floor and the radiators and the gap for the patio doors in millimetres about which I know precisely nothing. I've watched those grand designs shows a thousand times and cursed at the screen whenever a woman has declared herself project manager of her own build. Ludicrous, I always shout at the TV set. And now that I've been forced to project manage the renovation of my own house since the builder boyfriend left, I can confirm that my prejudice was absolutely bang on. I know nothing about ordering bifold doors and making decisions about the size of gaps in the back walls. All I know is, please, please put a door in. It's windy and that doesn't cut it. That leads to the builders in the bombsite kitchen area screaming at Terry the plumber, who has only come to help me figure out, before I pay for kitchen units, where the sink and dishwasher are going, but who now faces accusations, I think, that he is plotting with me to undermine them by changing the position of the doors. Part of the problem is that Stefano is so big now that he can't come to my job. He brought me a team of men and left them to bang and crash. They've been knocking out my kitchen for a period of time I cannot quantify. I'm so disorientated. It could be two weeks. It could be 3,000 years. Stefano gave them a pep talk when he first brought them. He warned them what will happen if they get something wrong. She shout? Asked one of them. No. Says Stefano, sighing heavily. She don't shout. She cry. The men gasped. Cry? Said one, looking as though he might turn around and leave without further ado. Every day since then, the men have arrived in a black van to bang and crash and shout incomprehensible questions up the stairs to where I'm hiding in the bedroom with the spaniels. One day, I come home from the kitchen shop reeling from a quote of £4,500 for what is, let's face it, a pile of chipboard, walk into the bomb site and find that the newly finished gap in the back wall for the bifold doors is not centred. I stand in front of it, pointing and welling up and trying to explain why I don't like it. Ring, Steph, says the man. You want door centre? Asked Stefano incredulously. 
I am incredulous that he is incredulous. Yes, I want centre. Of course I want centre. And my lip begins to wobble. My voice quakes. I make a little squeaking sound and he says, Put me on the phone to him, please. All I can hear then is his man saying, Po, po, grinder, po, po, seven foot opening. Then he passes me back. Yes. Stefano says, Yes, I say. Anything else? No, thank you. When are you coming? Ah, have a bit of work here, then maybe. He never comes. He's too big now. I blame myself for putting the word around South London ten years ago that the big bearded guy I found up a ladder outside my neighbour's house could do any job. Readers wrote to me begging me for his number and I passed his details on. People knocked on my door and asked to see my flat so they could assess whether his work was really top-notch and I showed them and it was. He didn't take all the help I offered him though. He rejected my branding ideas which involved a website called myalbanianbuilder.com. I don't like. I tell people I'm Italian. Well, you shouldn't. No one wants an Italian builder. We're crazy for Albanian builders. Even so, he decided to go with a boring name to do with South London, and he seems to have done very well with it. He is so sought after he cannot get to my job to stop his men fighting with my plumber. So, when they start screaming at poor Terry, I run down the stairs and I do the only thing I have in my power to do. I start crying, well, sobbing really, and within 15 seconds the men stop shouting and tell me they are sorry and will do anything I want with the door. This would be fabulous, if only I knew. A new addition to our thriving art scene in Worcestershire is The Ring, which brings art in several varied forms to the county's waterway network. John Plush went down to the launch to meet actress and storyteller Kat Wetherill and some of the other artists involved. That was just a tiny snippet from storyteller Cat Wetherill's engaging performance as part of Worcester's summer festival known as The Ring. Well, I'll be talking to Cat later, but first, let's hear some of what else the festival has to offer. For example, this. The Ring Festival is a celebration of the now continuous 21-mile circle of river and canal waterways in Worcestershire. One of the very first events in this festival was a performance of the piece we've just heard, Shire Skies. 
I asked the composer and beatboxer Dave Crow what goes into a piece like this. Uh, the idea was, because it's a family event and the festival is meant to bring Worcester together, my first idea was to make something very classical indeed because of all of the history that Worcester has. But then I thought that that would totally alienate a huge proportion of the demographic. And so I started with a 1-1 a one, one beat, which is a this kick. This is almost the structure of all electronic music that most youngsters listen to. Then I started to find lo nice low bass lines to warm up the, the sound. The beats, I've used lots of different sound effects instead of normal drums, just to make it a little bit more textural. And then, without knowing that a choir was going to sing this piece live, I decided to put a choir's piece on it to give it that classical edge. And so I actually used a digital choir, which sounds impeccably like a real choir. It's incredible. But I'm very happy that the Worcester Young Voices are able to sing that live. This weekend of diverse entertainment includes free yoga and pilates sessions, the children's choir that Dave was just speaking about, and ballet, danced by Shelley Eva Hayden, accompanied by cellist Julia Palmer-Price. running through this festival is of course water, a theme which poet Suz Winspear used to inspire a suite of poems which she wrote specially for this event. This is And the Sea Reclaimed the Land. Back in the empty town, the bells hung voiceless in the church tower. It should never have been like this, he thought, as he walked away from his home. The sky seemed low and heavy, and the wind across the marshes was tinged with a sea scent, bringing memories of vanished summers, the crunch of shingle underfoot and the insubstantial sweetness of cheap ice cream. Thoughts of those days before the sea arose, every tide a little higher, as the fingers of the ocean dragged the waters onto land. Long, long ago, somewhere else in time, Three golden apples fell from heaven One for the storyteller One for those who listened to her And one for those who told the story long, long ago Cat Wetherill is a storyteller. So this is a story I'm going to be telling later today. It's about the origins of the River Severn. And the story begins in Wales, high in the Cambrian mountains, beneath the peak of Plinlimon. And beneath that massive peak, there lay an enormous sleeping giant. And though he was sleeping, he was able to keep watch through his dreaming on his three daughters. He had three very beautiful daughters, water nymphs. One was called Gwy, one was Ustruth, and the other was Hafran. They had been born of the rain and the mist. 
And over the years, there on that wild Welsh mountainside, they grew into strong, beautiful girls until they shimmered like springtime brooks. And then he knew it was time for them to meet their destiny, to leave the mountain and find the sea. Cat, why do you tell stories? Well, I've been telling it for 20 years now, and uh, it's such a part of my life, I don't think I could stop even if I tried. My father was a great storyteller, and, and I come from Liverpool, and we are a city of speakers. You started off with children's storytelling to start with? No, I actually started with storytelling for grown-ups. Uh, that was what I wanted to do. I was known as the seductive storyteller, uh, and telling magical but dark stories. Um, very sensual and I love doing it but um, I soon realized that if I wanted to become a professional storyteller I would have to work with all ages and so I started working with children and I, I absolutely love it um, the younger the better I work a lot with infants funnily enough what's the essential difference between a child and a grown-up well they always say that you know even when you're telling stories to grown-ups they listen like children and that is true I think the main differences are in things like ghost stories and fear. When it comes to fears, children and, and grown-ups are very different. Um, for children, the biggest fear is abandonment. Um, but for grown-ups, the biggest fear is loss of control. And so very often when children um, want to come to my ghost story events for adults, I say to the parents, oh, no, don't bring them. And they go, why? What, what is so scary that, you know, my 12-year-old can't hear this when they play all these video games and things and see these scary films? And I say, because it's a different kind of fear and they're just going to be bored. You've written a lot of books. You've made one talking book. When you're performing, you're very much an actress facial expressions, body language and so forth. In the case of a talking book, or whenever you're faced with a, a non-visual situation, I mean that or radio or visually impaired audience possibly, how does it change it for you when you can't use your, your body and your face to help tell the story? Well, storytelling is a, is a wonderful art for anyone who's visually impaired because in India they call it cinema of the imagination and the pictures are all formed in the mind. The main difference I find when I'm adapting something for people who can't see me, whether it's on radio or for whatever reason, is that I sometimes have to describe the gestures that I am doing if it is important. Uh, because as you say, so much is implied through body language. If someone turns away on stage, you can clearly see it. But I would have to add in that line, she turned away and said. It's, it's stage instructions in effect. <laughs> she crosses to the window. I mean, it's that kind of stuff that you're, you're looking to add in, but the basic story stays the same. You're, I think you're a bit of a musician, is that right? I play several instruments to a very low standard. Um, I, one of the instruments I play is the dulcimer. It is a, it's an Appalachian mountain dulcimer, and I was horrified one time I think I was in uh, I think it was in Redditch or Malvern or somewhere where the, the the chap who'd booked the show said oh I've invited along the local dulcimer society we have a thriving scene here <laughs> I thought oh no I'm sunk I'm absolutely sunk but as it turned out they were playing a different kind of dulcimer they were all playing a hammered dulcimer and so 
<laughs> I got away with it. But um, I, I play a little bit of music, just enough to kind of embellish the stories and set the mood, and, and it works very, very well. You're a bit of a philosopher, is that right? Do you have a philosophical message for your audience? I think the best stories do have a message, though you, you always try not to preach. Though when I am training storytellers, I always get them to look at why they are telling the story, why it is important to them. You have to know why, out of all the stories in the world that you could be telling, why you are telling that one, because that will be the clue to you. Cat Weatherall, thank you very much. Thank you. John Plush looking at a new arts venture which has just set sail in Worcestershire. Patrick. So the pendulum has swung back again and the green acres of Purdeswell are once more in the frame as a potential new ground for Worcester City Football Club as efforts continue to return the club to its roots, writes Mike Price in the Worcestershire News. But all arguing for and against the plan would have been immaterial had the wartime use of the area gained more traction once peace broke out in 1945. For during the Second World War, Purdeswell was a busy airfield, used both for training pilots to take on the Luftwaffe and also testing planes made in the engineering heartland of the black country. There was considerable hope in some quarters that Purdeswell could develop into a municipal airport after the war, but lack of space shut down the idea. Possibly just as well, because although there were plenty of room to land a Spitfire, the runway now needed to cope with a transcontinental passenger jet would probably stretch three parts the way to Droitwich. In fact, this large area of flatland had been looked at as a potential airfield for quite some time, and as early as 1914, using a landing strip mown across the pasture. Pilot F.W. Godden gave an amazing flying display. He looped the loop three times and flew at some surprising angles, according to reports. F.W.'s only beef was that many folk choose to watch his aerial acrobatics from adjoining fields and didn't pay to enter the enclosed area. I do this for a living, he protested, not for fun. By the mid-1920s, it had become fashionable for towns to look around for potential airport sites and Worcester Corporation considered four, Henwick, Pitchcroft, Powick Hands and Purdeswell. Of these, Purdeswell got the nod because it was flat, close to the city centre, and didn't flood. Had the plan gone ahead then, Worcester would have had the most convenient civic airport in the UK, being only two miles from the city centre. But there was a land wrangle and subsequent delay. Until a civilian's operator's licence was obtained in 1937, Purdeswell was used as an unlicensed airfield to host air displays, while in 1932 the Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, also landed there when he arrived to open Worcester's new river bridge. However, bouncing across the grass gave the future king severe travel sickness, which a civic lunch probably didn't help. When work started, 
More than £14,000 was spent creating a level grass runway, running parallel with Droitwich Road and erecting a number of buildings. Soon the new airfield became quite busy, attracting famous flyers like Amy Johnson and Sir Alan Cobham. Top jockeys riding at Worcester also used it, including Gordon, later Sir Gordon, Richards. During the Second World War, Purdiswell was in constant use as an RAF elementary flying training school, mostly using Tiger Moths, although Austin's Aircraft Division at Longbridge also tested ferry battle bombers there. Two link trainers with dummy cockpits were set up and became familiar landmarks. Because of the nature of the operation, some overshooting of the runway occurred and on one occasion a 16-year-old girl was killed by a plane crashing into Bilford Road. Other planes plummeted out of the sky to kill pilots at Crown East and Fernal Heath. Then there was the story of the American film star Clark Gable, who was supposed to have been on board a military plane, either as pilot or crew, which overshot and crashed into Droitwich Road. Problem was lack of first-hand accounts. Was it him or just someone who looked like him? We'll never know for sure. After the war, there was no future for Purdiswell as a commercial airfield because it was too small. But in the late 60s, there were plans to reopen it as a landing strip for local business and industry. However, the locals objected and the project never got off the ground. Amy Johnson, probably the most famous pilot who ever did get off the ground at Purdiswell Airfield, never actually got her RAF wings. In fact, only five female pilots did. Jackie Mogridge was one of them, a seasoned RAF volunteer. Her daughter, Candy Atkins, writing in the Telegraph, remembers how her mum was encouraged to get her wings by her friend Jean Lennox Bird, having spent much of the war in the air delivering fighter planes to air bases. Up until this point, she writes... Women hadn't been allowed to take the course and Mummy found being a housewife dull, so they took it and were much more advanced than the other cadets because they had thousands of flying hours already logged in different warplanes. My older sister Veronica was three then. She used to be plonked in the doorway of the plane between the cockpit and the passengers and told to keep quiet. She became the squadron talisman and was left to explore the hangars and cockpits or to sit in the control tower. After I was born, 15 years after Veronica, we would sit in bed together before school and Mum would say, come on, let's pretend we're in a spitfire and the duvet can be the clouds. Hold the joystick, it's very sensitive. You've got to line it up with the horizon like you're balancing on the point of a knitting needle. Mum was born in South Africa and came to England to study to be a commercial pilot at Whitney Flying Club, Oxford, when war broke out. Her mother said, come straight back home on the boat. And my mum replied, I've already written to the RAF to offer my services for flying. She was only 18. The RAF told her they didn't accept women, so she became a RAF, Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and then worked on radar watching the Battle of Britain on a screen with green dots. She said it was so sad to watch the green dots come together and then see one of them drop 
and if the other one headed back to Germany, you'd know you'd lost an English pilot. Eventually the call came from Air Transport Auxiliary and she began ferrying aircraft. On the 6th of June 1944, she delivered a Spitfire from the factory to Johnny Arthur Holton, the pilot who shot the first plane down on D-Day. Fifty years after D-Day, when Mummy was 74, a woman named Carolyn Grace got in touch. She had renovated a Spitfire and looked in the plane's logbook and realised that it was the one that Mum had flown all those years ago. So they asked her to reenact it. And Johnny too. Carolyn said Mum flew it lower and faster than she would have ever dared. When Mum died in 2004, we used the Spitfire to scatter her ashes over Duncanswell Airport. The day before, Carolyn took me up for a ride. I'd never learnt how to fly. It was always too close to home. She said, go on, you take control. And I remembered those flying lessons in bed and what Mummy had said about balancing it on the horizon. Carolyn said, oh my God, you really are your mother's daughter. We have great honour in opening this museum. That was Henry Sandon opening the refurbished concert hall named after him at the Royal Worcester Porcelain Museum this summer. John Plush went down to talk to Henry, but before we hear just how it feels to have a whole concert hall named after you, Brian here takes a look at the last 50 years of the factory's life, courtesy of the Worcester News. There was a time when a tour around its works was as high on the to-do list of visitors to Worcester as a stop-off at the cathedral or the guildhall. Sadly, those days are long gone, and although the independent and magnificent Museum of Royal Worcester remains, much of the rest of the site of the Worcester Royal Porcelain Company, which once carried the city's name worldwide, is now covered by Millennium Housing. With the passing of time and the changing of business fortunes, it might be difficult to appreciate now just how iconic this factory was. For example, in 1951, when benefactor C.W. Dyson Perrins funded a new museum, which, not surprisingly, bore his name, along came Princess Elizabeth to open it. Not many business names carried that much clout in the days before the royals became more public. In 1966, the Seven Street Works had another royal visitor, when up rolled the Earl of Snowdon at the wheel of a silver-blue Aston Martin DB5. Princess Margaret's husband was there in his role as an advisor to the Council of Industrial Design, two officers of which sensibly arrived in their own transport. Lord Snowden found his tour of the factory so fascinating he stayed an hour longer than had been anticipated. Certainly longer than his wife had expected because she was back in London waiting to start their son's fifth birthday party. With apologies all round at having to leave, the Earl put the pedal to the metal and zoomed off back to the jelly and ice cream. Sports stars were other familiar signatures in the visitor's book, 
and six months before Lord Snowden, several of the West Indies cricket team, which was playing Worcestershire at New Road, dropped in. It would have been an autograph hunter's dream, because as well as Gary Sobers, arguably the greatest all-rounder the sport has ever seen, they included legendary off-spinner Lance Gibbs and the fearsome fast bowler Charlie Griffith. The heady days of the 1960s, which saw record profits announced, were highlighted by the firm purchasing its first computer in 1967. Quotes, to ease the clerical burden of the company. Close quotes. Until then, it had shared a corporate facility in Birmingham. A comparable computer today would have a capacity of at least a million, if not a billion times greater. As one of the experts here said, it's like comparing an early steam-driven car with a Bugatti Veyron. They're both cars, they both go forward, but that's about it. In 1980, Royal Worcester produced its most expensive piece ever in an effort to combat the growing financial storm clouds. The rainbow lorry Keat was the first in a series of exotic birds by James Alder and was marketed in a limited edition of 50 for £3,850 each, or nearly £12,000 today. As part of the lengthy manufacturing process, it took artist Arthur Badham more than a fortnight to paint each model. But the lorry Keat couldn't keep Royal Worcester flying. There had been a merger with Spode in 1976 due to heavy competition from abroad, but it failed to halt the slide. And in 2005, a large part of the Royal Worcester 7th Street factory was sold to developers. The company went into administration in November 2008, and early the following year, the brand name and intellectual property were acquired by Port Merion Pottery Group, which has a manufacturing base in Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> Henry Sandon, here we are in the new Henry Sandon Hall, the concert hall named after yourself. The fact that it's a concert hall for music brings you in a full circle back to your musical origins. Yes, it's fantastic having a hall named after me. That's unbelievable. I can't, can't really believe it at all. I, it's all a dream going on at the moment. And, and uh, I, of course I started my career in, in music here in Worcester. I came to Worcester in 1953 uh, and sang in the cathedral choir and, um, and taught music at the Royal Grammar School and, uh, and had, a, had a very happy time. When you were studying at the Guildhall School of Music, did you see yourself with a future career in music? Oh yes, I would always plan that. I, I came from insurance company work and uh, got fed up with that. And then uh, music was, was, my, was my aim and, uh, and so it was wonderful. So how did you get into ceramics and antiques? Well, it's a bit strange. I, I lived in an old building, very close to Cathedral, it was the Bishop's Palace. We, we occupied the, um, the coach house, it was marvellous, with my wife, and, um, 
uh, and uh, she went into the hospital to have our first child. And uh, in those days, you weren't allowed as husbands to attend the births of children, which is a great joy because uh, it's a horrible business and noisy. I mean, I've heard all the archers' uh, births, and it's terrible, noisy business. So I was delighted to stay at home, and um, I thought I'd better do something before she came back with our child. So, um, uh, so I excavated the garden, dug down, and um, it was a Roman area, and uh, I got down to the Roman level about about, about ten feet down, and uh, and uh, found uh, Roman bodies and uh, and Roman pots, and, uh, and it was absolutely marvellous for me. I, I enjoyed it. I I got hooked on Roman pots and medieval pots, and. Uh, I, I I became a, a sort of a, a potaholic. I I love pots. That really changed my life. I gradually moved away from music into pots. So, what is it about pots that fascinates you? Why why not uh, textiles or architecture? It's silly, isn't it? I I just love pots. I went through a phase of needing a pot a day, otherwise I couldn't satisfy my craving. It was a dreadful illness. And uh, now I've stopped doing that, but I occasionally still have to have to get a new pot. I love I love caressing them. I love and I've tried making them. I'm not very good at making pots. I don't know what it is about them, but they they just get into my bloodstream. How much does it really matter then if a pot is damaged? Oh, I, I love it even more because um, it, it it's had its life. It's like a person with a with an injury. I mean, you you, you appreciate them. Even more, don't you really? I mean, we're all we're all damaged in some way or other. I don't I don't care if the pot is damaged as long as it's there and and it's it's loved. The pots should be loved, even if they're broken. They 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 can still be mended or 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 even if they're damaged. They 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 mean a lot to me. So, you were born in London. So what brought you to Worcester? Well, I came to Worcester to be a musician. I, I, I joined the Cathedral Choir and um, sang there under David Wilcox, a great, great musician, of course. And, uh, and today, uh, at, the, at this opening of the, of the hall, I've even met, met some old uh, lay clerks that I, I used to sing with. And uh, one old guide I used to have to take parties around the factory. And uh, she's 102 now. What memories do you have of this building? Well, it was uh, the original museum when I, when I first came here in nineteen something or other. Um, th this was the museum, and, and I, I had to transfer all the pots from this building over to the new museum, which is the old St Peter's School, um, which is still the museum now. And uh, this is marvelous handling all these pots, uh, wonderful things, gilded and painted, and absolutely fantastic. And looking at each one and enjoying them as, a, as I moved them across to the new museum. It was, it was a, a real launch to me in, in, in knowledge and, and enjoyment. You, you worked here in, in the, the pottery manufacture? Uh, I didn't actually make anything. I, I did a few guidance of, of, of designs and patterns, but I did, I, I'm no, no potter myself. But, um, but I ran the museum and I also Organised the tours of the factory for the for the people, and especially taking the uh, VIPs around, which, uh, including great cricket teams and football teams. <laughs> now that the factory is gone, 
how are we going to fill the gap left? Well, there's just a bit of hope that the, the, the owner of this site has now started a, a new little launch pad for, for using, uh, showing gilding and painting uh, in, the fa in the old buildings of the factory and to encourage people and to let them see the craftsmanship that is still here in Worcester. There's still some superb craftsmen in Worcester. Um, and uh, it's, it's joy to see them come here and, uh, and demonstrate their work for the public to see. It's a little hope for the future. Perhaps this can be built on and uh, the factory could spring back again into action. It would be wonderful to know that. What relevance do you think do antiques have for visually impaired people? Well, if they're pots, of course, they're wonderful to hold. And, uh, it's marvellous to be able to pick up a pot and feel the weight and feel the, the, the love that's gone into it, feel the curves and the shapes of it, feel the decoration on the outside of it. And the pot is, is, is a human thing. Feel it and love it and it will speak to you with joy. Henry Zandon, thank you very much. Delighted indeed. All the very best, everyone. The music used there was The Birds by Otterino Respighi, which was used as a theme tune to Henry Sandon's series Going for a Song. It accompanied a picture of the mechanical bird slowly revolving in an antique cage. The actor, Simon Williams, however, is clearly fascinated by modern and very real-life birds, as he explains in his column in The Telegraph magazine. The bird world here is in a frenzy of activity. It's like B&Q on a bank holiday. The usual customers, the tits and sparrows, are queuing in the magnolia to take their turn at the feeder. It's compulsive viewing. Where's the robin today? Why does the nuthatch choose to eat upside down? The goldfinch has no tail manners, and I worry that the woodpecker who glides in for a late breakfast in his spivvy waistcoat has opted out of his woodwork altogether. The wily squirrels sit on the fence, waiting to garner any spillage once our cockapoo has gone off patrol duty. In the woods, the sparrowhawk is biding his time. His speed and strike rate are deadly. I had worried about the house martins might not approve of the new paint around their nests or that the ETA from the winter home might get messed up by the threat of hard borders or the beast from the east. But phew, they swooped in, bang on schedule. Welcome home, darlings. You know where the windscreen of my car is. Last year, we were given a bird box with a wee camera inside. I'm watching a blue tit check it out, poking her beak in the door. As she enters... I switch my attention to the television monitor and see her looking around, measuring for curtains and so on. I hope she's the same tenant as last year, or perhaps she's tweeted a friend. We watch her build a nest with bits of grass and straw and the offcuts of dog hair we left for her. A dream home for a first-time buyer, south-facing and fur-lined. And guess what, dear? There's a mother care right on our doorstep next to the fast food outlet. She couldn't wait to get laying, and we became voyeurs glued to the screen. We even gave up watching me in EastEnders. It was like Big Brother without the fake tan. 
We waited for her to pop out for comfort breaks so we could count her eggs. She stopped at six. She and her mate took it in turns to brood, moving them about so they'd each get a fair share of the prime spot in the middle of the clutch. When they started hatching, we got up early to catch any dawn arrivals. Feeding the chicks was a non-stop business. Six tiny beaks, wider than wide, shouting for morsels, like One Direction fans screaming for more. To distract predators, the parents removed the eggshells and droppings from the nest and dumped them beyond the hedge. Clever old Mother Nature. We held our breath as they fledged, then crossed our fingers they'd become boomerang kids. We had empty nest syndrome. Simon Williams' woodpecker that visited his garden for breakfast would no doubt be a descendant of the prehistoric woodpecker officially named Australopithecus Nelson Mandelae. That's right, a woodpecker named after Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela has had many things named after him, including an orchid, a racehorse, an apartment in Only Fools and Horses, and even a nuclear particle. Joan Armatrading wrote a song for him, and in the Telegraph magazine, she writes about the time she visited him at his home in Pretoria, South Africa. In 1995, I was in South Africa to give a concert, and I got a phone call saying, Would you like to meet Nelson Mandela? I replied, No, thank you. No, seriously, I said, Of course, I'd love to. I thought it was for a reception or something, and I went to his house in the afternoon, fully expecting there to be a big crowd of people. Stepping out of the car, I could feel this atmosphere, like something you could literally touch, a presence. The people who greeted me were all smiling, totally up, and then I was taken into a room to meet him and we sat and talked. Don't ask me what was said because I'm not going to tell you. Then he said, let's go into the garden. I thought, okay, that's where everybody else is. But we go into the garden and there's still just the two of us. And then he said he'd like to give me his book, Long Walk to Freedom. He signed it and wrote something to me. So that was the day. To be invited out of the blue like that, to be the only person there, it was such a privilege. I was told that he and his fellow prisoners had listened to my music in prison. I was offered a lot of money to go to South Africa to perform during apartheid, but I would never have done that. But visiting when Mandela had just been made president was fantastic, to see the expectation and joy and that feeling of we've done it from everybody. You felt that even at the airport. People were completely supportive of him, enthused and lifted by him, and were waiting for the best of everything to happen because of him. Nelson Mandela had this innate quality about him. I always say to people, I know why I'm here. I was born to write and to do music and I think he was born to be that example and to help people to understand something. To go through what he did 
and come out of it with that compassion and forgiving nature. To be able to say, I'm going to forgive you in the proper, true sense of the word and not hold a grudge. That's a very special person. When I was in South Africa, I went to Robin Island where Mandela was held and I met some of the guards who were looking after him. They had fallen in love with him. They were talking about how he had changed them and that they wished they could be looking after him now in freedom, be part of his household caring for him. You're not going to get many prison warders saying that about their former inmates. A few years later, I was asked to write a tribute song for him, which I did, called The Messenger, and then to perform it when he came to London for a private function. He came up on stage and danced for the whole of the song. At that point, he wasn't very strong, so it was quite incredible. I've been back to South Africa at various times over the years. In 2014, I was the only non-South African artist to be invited to join in the celebrations of the 20th anniversary of democracy. Anybody following Nelson Mandela was inevitably going to fall short. Having said that, I'm not sure the right person was ever picked to follow him, but that's for the people of South Africa to decide. You'd be very lucky to find another Nelson Mandela. Coming up in the second half of the magazine, we get into manufacturing. Encounter the chequered past of Norton Barracks. Find the actor Simon Williams let loose in Don Yang. And Matt Monroe's son let loose in Jakarta. But before any of that, it's time for the second instalment in our mini-serial, Surprise Inheritance, written for us by Worcester's own Angela Lanyon. You remember how Lucy had inherited a house in a Cornish fishing village and met several of her neighbours, the curly-haired fisherman Toby Pendeen, the barista from London, Winston, Nicholas the caretaker, and the mysterious nocturnal figure that disappeared into the trees. When Lucy walked into the village the following morning, she was surprised to see the streets busy. Two police cars were drawn up by the harbour, along with a Coast Guard 4 by 4 Whatever's happening? she asked Mrs Trubin. Didn't you hear the wind? Freighter out there, steering gear gone. Crew all safe, thank God, but the ship's drifting on the rocks. Twill break up for sure. So that explained the figure Lucy had seen, someone going to help with the rescue. I saw them, you know, black devils crawling out of the sea. Old Mrs. Trubin's voice came from the back of the shop, and not for the first time. Give over, mother, you know nothing about it. Mrs. Trubin turned back to Lucy. Coast Guard's here to keep an eye on the wreckage. Don't want us helping ourselves. She laughed, <laughs> as if we would. Curious to know what was going on, Lucy walked down to the slipway. She'd read enough stories to know about shipwrecks, but she'd no idea what the law was about stuff washed ashore. Hi! 
Winston hailed her from beside the cafe. He had a wetsuit over his arm and was loading it into the back of a small car. Just off for my diving lesson, he said. Want to come along? Lucy shook her head. She still wanted to explore the village. Nevertheless, she strolled over to him. Used to be a Navy training place before the Pendines took it over, he explained. Mustache. He slammed the boot as if he didn't want her to see what was inside. See you, he called. Then he was gone. What's the hurry, she thought, then caught sight of the policeman watching the retreating car. The old woman's remark about black devils sprang to mind. But surely Winston had nothing to do with the wreck. Give you a lift to the gate. Toby Pendine pulled up beside her in the pickup truck. On my way to Bodmin, climb aboard. He leaned across and shut the door with a bang. Keep out of the way of that lot. He nodded in the direction of the four by four. Always wanting to know what you're about. The truck lurched over the potholes. Time this place moved into the 21st century. Oh, but it's lovely, peaceful, Lucy replied. Can't eat peace. What we want is a nice little holiday complex. Could turn your place into a hotel and make a packet. I mean, who's going to live in it? I reckon we could make a go of it. What do you think? I have to get planning permission, of course, but you know how things are. He rubbed his fingers together. Have a think, he reminded Lucy when he dropped her at the gates. Lunch over, Lucy wandered across the lawn and along what she found was a well-trodden path. This brought her out onto the cliff edge where a worn set of steps led down to the beach. Shading her eyes, she looked at the sea where the freighter, Ariadne Banks, was rolling on the incoming tide. Half on her side, she looked as if she'd go under any moment. Below, watched over by a solitary policeman, the beach was littered with washed-up boxes and crates. I suppose, she thought, this is where the person I saw last night was coming. I wonder where he came from. The only person who would have come from the house was Nicholas, or his wife. And to be honest, Janice looked too much of a wimp to venture out into the storm. Back at the house, she thought she'd continue her investigations into the attics. What on earth was all this stuff? Where had it come from? And maybe Tony had a point. How could she possibly live alone in this place? And what on earth was she to do with it? Her parents had died in a plane crash when she was a baby. And apparently the great-grandfather, whom she'd never known, had left the place in trust. And he had been determined that whoever inherited it didn't make any quick decisions. Hence the two years before it really was hers. Maybe she should think about turning it into a hotel after all but not a holiday complex. The idea of caravans all over the cliff top filled her with dismay. When she mentioned it to Janice, as they were clearing after supper, the woman shrugged her shoulders. Oh, the Pendines have always been like that. Get their grubby paws onto anything that'll make money. I didn't know you knew them, Lucy replied. I thought Nicholas said you came from up north. You get to hear things. Janice turned bright red. Better forget it. Nicky wouldn't want me saying things like that. And she hurried away to the kitchen. Realising the wind had dropped, Lucy decided to go and have another look at the ship. She'd only seen a shipwreck on the TV and she wondered what a real one looked like. Dusk was not far off 
and long shadows lay across the grass. Under the trees it was already dark. The ship was closer in now, but the policeman had gone. So after a quick look round, Lucy started down the steps. Pebbles slid away under her feet, but once at the bottom the sand was firm. It would be dark soon, but if she didn't dawdle she had time to get to the end of the beach and back. Some of the crates had been taken away, and blue police tape was draped around the rest. Other than that, the place seemed deserted. But in the cliff to the right yawned the dark mouth of a cave. There were footprints leading into it, and as she drew nearer, she saw something dark spread-eagled on the rocks. Her heart sank. A shiver ran down her spine, but as Lucy drew closer, she recognised what it was. Not a body, but a wetsuit. A wetsuit, and the only person around here who owned a wetsuit, so far as she knew, was Winston. But where was he, and what was he doing? Were those his footprints, and why was he hiding in the cave? Not wanting to surprise him in case he were changing, and suddenly realising how dark it had become, she turned and hurried back to the house. Lucy spent an uneasy night. Once she woke and thought she heard noises overhead. There were bound to be mice in a place like this, perhaps rats too. She pulled the blankets up and determined to speak to Nicholas in the morning. Halfway through her breakfast, there came a hammering on the door. Police, open up! So what's going on? We promise you answers by the end of this magazine. But for now, Sue has another piece by Melissa Keitch, who too seems to have a house with a spare room. The little lodger is moving in. I chose her after an, ex an exhaustive search of 20-somethings looking for accommodation, during which I met a terrifying selection of millennials and members of Generation Snowflake. The highlight has to be the 22-year-old engineer who came with his parents. They toured the house and inspected the room on offer. They then fixed me with a withering stare and, as the lad stood by saying nothing, fired at me the most frightening list of questions I can imagine being asked about a prospective lodging situation. And where will we sleep when we come to stay, was the first, asked by the mother, a very nice lady, but not so nice I'd want her in my house every weekend, sitting on my couch watching Coronation Street on my flat screen. Well, I said, if you look out that window, you'll see the back of a very nice B&B &B on the high street that has rooms at extremely reasonable rates. All things considered, I got in with the next question. Any girlfriend or who will be coming to stay? She looked askance. Oh no, he's much too busy for girls, aren't you? No, but he's got lots of very good friends. I suppose it'll be all right for them to stay. Friends, I said, half choking on the S of the plural. How many? How often? Well, they'll want to come for nights out in London. Not every weekend, of course. I gulped. 
After we had made our way downstairs and were standing by the front door, the father said, And the rent? What does that include? Ah, well, I don't think you'll find a better deal in this area. That includes all your gas and electricity, your council tax, Wi-Fi, even your cleaning. So, but I wasn't getting the smiles of delight I'd been expecting. The three stared back blankly as the father said, And what else is included? I suddenly had a horrible premonition that this was going somewhere not very nice. I, I can't think of anything else, I said, for truly I couldn't quiet and hoped I wouldn't have to. The father said, will we have to do his laundry then? Oh, thank God. But still, beg pardon, I said. His washing, said his mother. Who'll do his washing? I was stumped. The lad himself, all six foot four of him, still hadn't said a word. I think I showed you the laundry room next to the kitchen. I seem to remember, said the father, that in my first lodgings, my landlady did all my washing and cooked all my meals. I had to think on my feet, so I said, Look, I'm doing this for money, so if you want to make me an offer, I'll wash his clothes and cook all his meals if the price is right. But I draw the line at pole dancing for him and his friends. I didn't say that. Of course I didn't. Still, they looked back disapprovingly. I got a text a few days later saying he had found accommodation that better suited his needs. Possibly his parents had booked him into the Mandarin Oriental in Knightsbridge for three years. A string of other hopefuls wanting the impossible came and went, and then a very nice computer whiz kid who I thought I could live with and a sweet girl I liked a lot. It was between the two. Both said they wanted the room, but I had a vision of me, let's be realistic, running down the stairs to let the dogs out at 7am dressed in a pair of skimpy knickers, or forgetting to shut the loo door, or jumping in the shower to sing a couple of Shania Twain numbers, and I thought I'd better not have a male lodger. A girl would be less embarrassing. So I went onto the website where I'd found them and sent the man a message that I thought was a very nice rejection. In order not to hurt his feelings, I told him I had chosen someone else purely on the basis they're a girl. I pressed send and a few seconds later let out a blood-curdling scream. I had typed possibly the stupidest thing I could have come up with so far as equality law is concerned. Oh dear God, he's going to sue me, isn't he? Yes, Your Honour, I chose her purely because she was a girl and she was small and wouldn't take up too much space. Ah well, I love the little lodger. She may be pint-sized, but she's feisty as hell and she does a terrifying job. And in the evenings, to unwind, she bakes cakes. I'd call her the perfect woman, but I don't want to break any laws. Brian is also interested in accommodation, its history that is, the somewhat chequered history of the Norton Barracks here in Worcester. It didn't take one young royal inner-skilling fusilier long to blot his copybook 
when the regiment was posted to Worcester in 1967. Within a week of arriving at Norton Barracks, he managed to get himself and all his colleagues banned from the Saracen's Head public house in the tithing. After a fracas at the licensed premises, Major John Hassett, second-in-command of the Fusiliers, told the evening news, At the request of the management, the commanding officer has put the Saracen's head out of bounds. Apparently, some young Fusilier got himself into trouble at the pub. The Fusiliers have been notified of this in battalion orders, which probably made the miscreant very popular... Major Hassett added that the culprit had since been punished by the army. Mind you, he certainly wasn't the first fighting fit young soldier to fall foul of authority and the locals after drinking several too many. The Inniskilling's predecessors at Norton Barracks had been the Lancashire Fusiliers and many a Monday morning at Worcester Magistrates Court was spent listening to a contrite officer pleading that so-and-so was an excellent soldier and steady under fire, but a bit too exuberant for his own good when off the leash. It's been a very long time since Norton Barracks hosted serving soldiers of any regiment. The last to occupy the complex, officially described as having been built in the fortress Gothic revival style between 1874 and 1877, was 14 Signals Regiment, a more sober-sounding bunch than the Fusiliers, and it left in 1977. After lying vacant for a decade, the keep was sold to developers for conversion into apartments in 1987, and the rest of the 55-acre site was gradually covered by a new housing estate, many of the roads being named after Worcestershire Regiment battle honours. Norton Barracks had originally been designed as the depot of the 29th Worcestershire Regiment of Foot and the 36th Herefordshire Regiment of Foot. And when these were amalgamated in 1881 to become the Worcestershire Regiment, the barracks became its official home. The regiment ceased to use Norton in 1957 and when it was amalgamated with the Sherwood Foresters in 1970 to become the Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters Regiment, it established a depot at Battlesbury Barracks in Warminster. Amalgamation also faced the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers for after leaving Norton Barracks, it too fell victim to army reorganisation and became the 1st Battalion Royal Irish Rangers. I wonder what shenanigans Worcester might have seen this new year, just gone, had the Inniskillen Fusiliers still been at Norton. New Year's Eve 1981 saw the singer Matt Munro in Indonesia along with his son Matt Jr., who writes about their visit in the Telegraph magazine. Patrick picks up the story. I was just 17 when Dad was asked to perform a couple of concerts in Jakarta in Indonesia. He took my mum, my sister and me with him for what was our first Christmas away from London. On our way to Jakarta, we stopped off in Hong Kong. We arrived at our hotel around midnight. 
but Dad wouldn't let me go to bed. Come on, son, he said. We're going out. You need to see Hong Kong. So we left my mum and sister asleep in the hotel and went straight to catch the ferry to Kowloon and spent the night walking the streets looking at the night markets. He wanted to show me Hong Kong and spend time with me, which I loved. We flew to Jakarta and on New Year's Eve he pulled me up on stage to sing Auld Lang Syne with him. I'd never really sung before and could barely talk in tune, let alone sing, but I think he wanted to do something special. His exact words when we came off stage were, What was that? During the trip we played golf. Dad wasn't great at golf, whereas I was quite good at it, which kind of made him seem more normal. On top of that, the world wanted him, so if I wanted to have my dad to myself, it was always on the golf course. The night before we were due to play, Dad said, You can go out, but be back early. Don't do anything silly. A concierge had told him to tell me not to go to a nightclub called the Pink Panther because it wasn't safe, so I said of course I wouldn't, and then hopped into a taxi and went straight there. I ended up talking to a group of young Indonesians and, despite the language barrier, we had a great time. I didn't get back to the hotel until 6.30am, and an hour later I got a phone call from Dad asking why I wasn't down at the foyer to play golf with the King of Indonesia, Paku Alan VIII, and his son. I was 20 when Dad died of cancer, and a few years later I became an after-dinner speaker for cancer research. One evening someone said, Can you sing a song, Matt? So I sang yesterday, and one song turned into four. Then in 1986 I sang on a talent show, Opportunity Knocks, with Bob Monkhouse. I came third, and it led to Bob taking me on tour with him and teaching me the craft. In 1991, I started my own show with a nine-piece band, performing my version of Dad's songs. I didn't realise what he meant to fans around the world until I was performing to 30,000 people in places like the Philippines. I'll soon start my ninth and final British tour. I've carried on for all those years because I've always felt like Dad was still around. But now I'm ready to finally say goodbye to my dad, which I haven't done before, to start a new chapter of my life and be at peace. The Junior Matt Munro's final tour of his dad's songs came to an end in the autumn of last year. We've all heard of artists' absolutely final last ever concert of all time turning out to be just a precursor of their next tour. But Matt's sister, Michelle, confirmed to the Worcester Talking magazine that Matt Jr. has indeed retired from show business now and hung his hat up, as she puts it. Actor Simon Williams, on the other hand, is still very current and also has experience of working in the East. He writes in the Telegraph magazine, 20 years ago, I was filming The Opium War, a Chinese propaganda production that sought to explain how they'd been outwitted by the tiny roly-poly Queen Victoria. The director, Xi Jin, liked my nose, apparently, and thought it perfectly represented British imperialism. So I was given the script and told, Mr Xi wants you to like it. I didn't. It had been written in Chinese, then translated by the man who wrote the Kung Fu movies. 
As Admiral Sir Charles Elliot, I had the line, Scram, you guys, beat it. But nobody was bothered. The English dialogue was going to be dubbed. I might as well have been reciting Thought for the Day in Welsh. Our translator didn't speak English as well as they thought she did, so there were some pretty random exchanges. After my first take, I asked, What about the continuity? She smiled, Till six o'clock. Scenes were rehearsed with local actors and we were then instructed to watch and copy them. Tail wagging the dog. My admiral's uniform was made of draylon, a fabric better suited to old sofas in theatrical digs, and it was decreed that all English men had curly hair. The heat was ferocious, so at the end of the day my whole body was stained with the blue dye from my costume. In the bathroom mirror stood a curly-haired smurf, drinking the last of his duty-free whisky and missing home like never before. To cheer me up, my wife faxed me the Telegraph crossword and the test match scores. Also, I had a secret stash of hobnobs. We had some magnificent banquets, our hosts joking that the Chinese would eat the legs off anything, including your chair, ha-ha. There were no birds anywhere, and the pet shop I found in the market turned out to be a butcher's. To save refrigeration costs, the dogs were only slaughtered when a customer had been found for every joint. Smoking seemed to be compulsory. A popular brand of cigarette was Double Happiness, advertised on posters with cheesy Westerners in polo neck sweaters. Outside our hotel in Donyang was a sign... Hotel not open to people be sloppily dressed. It should be the title of a Bob Dylan album. As a fan of cricket, Simon Williams might have been interested in our next item, brought to us by a new contributor to the magazine, John Reynolds. I've played with them for years. Really? I've even dreamt about them. I know I've fantasised about them. Surely not. Like so many things in life... You use something, sometimes on a daily basis, but you never ever question how it might have started its life. So, I've come to find out just how a cricket bat is made. And I've come to talk to a man who actually makes them. Roger Weston and I uh, got my own little business now called Solitaire Cricket. And uh, the, the good thing about it is I live in Solitaire Avenue and that's where their names come from. And it's, it's out there at the moment. I'm in Roger's workshop where he fashions bats from willow. When did you start making cricket bats, Roger? Uh, I left school at 14 and I went as a cleaner and a car washer at Duncan Fernley's. And I got to start making bats when I was 15 when I left school. What was the cost of a bat when you first started? 50 to 60 pound was a Duncan's top bat, and that was one of the best bats about, so I think nearly everybody used a Fernie bat in those days, especially the Worcester people. What's the cost of a bat today? Up to 500 pound is a top bat. Uh, Grey Nichols in Gunnamore and Slazinger of the big companies that are left in England for 500 pound. When you worked for Fernley, you made bats for some fairly famous cricketers yeah yeah the, the most important was it was in the 80s when Bo from Gooch Alan Border Graham Mickey just come on the scene and they all used Fernley and, and at one time there was eight Fernley bats being used for in, in an England team on one game sort of thing you know 
So some real big players. Why do they use English willow? It's just tradition, John. It, it grows slower, and it's it's always grown by a river bank or a brook or something, just so it takes the moisture sort of thing. And it's about 15 years a tree will grow, but if you find one at 30 years old, obviously you get tighter grains in better better bats out of them sort of thing. I buy my willow in as it's cut and dried, ready to, to, to work with. Uh, I need to get the, the edges, the width of the blade first, then obviously I'll put a face on the blade and it's pressed to, I wouldn't like to say what the, the actual pressing uh, weight is sort of thing, but it's pressed and I tap it in with a bat and a mallet just to get the best ping out of it sort of thing. So it's all done, really a bit of, a bit of guesswork, but you know, knowing the machine that long sort of thing, I know what to do sort of thing, you know. When you say pressed, what do you mean exactly? The willow is, is, is put on a V-shaped bed and it's rolled with a roller across the top of it. And every time it gets to the end of the blade, we put more pressure on. So it just keeps winding backwards and forwards under the roller, more pressure. And it just gives it a little nice curve on it, which they call a bow in the cricket bat sort of thing. And you tap the ball on it and you get the best spring out of it sort of thing. Is there a maximum weight and, and length of a bat? Not a maximum weight... But most of the heaviest bats are about £3.4 to £3.6. But there is an overall length of a bat, which is 38 inches. And the, the width of a bat can uh, be no longer than four and a quarter inches. That's the width from edge of the bat to the other edge sort of thing, right? Your edges of the bat now, there's a 40mm mark on the, on the edge now where you can't go any further than the 40mm. In the spine of the bat, which is the piece that runs down the back of the bat, is 70mm. That's only come in, in the last two years with a new ECB rule, sorry. I know you can get short and long-handled bats. What's the difference in that? And it's just for the, the six-foot-four guy, sorry. You know. Talking about the handle, what does that consist of? Because, I, I mean, I know it fits into the bat. It's not part of the overall wood, is it? It's fitted in. The handle's made of cane. The cane is laminated together, and in between the cane is three pieces of rubber, which they call a free-spring handle. Some people use cork, but the majority of people use rubber in their things. Then it's spliced into the willow, which is a, a V-cut in the willow blade, and the handle is fitted to the actual the V to make a splice. So it's obviously laminating together a two pieces of wood, like marrying them together, really. There's there's string round it, isn't there? Because when you, when you haven't got a rubber on the handle, you've got this string wound round it. What's that for, and how do you do it? Um, the, the, the string is, is, is put on by a lathe. It, it, you, you put your bat into a lathe, and, it, and it's, it's wound onto the handle, and it, and it just helps the spring... With, with a bit of give and take sort of thing. But it holds the, the whole handle together as well, sort of thing, before the grip's taken on. So it is a bit of security to give it that extra strength. But because it's string, it's flexible as well, sort of thing. So it's still got the whip in the handle. And then when you've done that, you fit the what we call the rubber on yeah, it. Yeah, the rubber grip, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the rubber grip, which is uh, obviously, we call it rubber grips, but they're made of latex nowadays, you know, obviously mass productions and different machines to make them sort of thing. So what's when you do you, when do you fit the 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 handle? Is that, is that when you've done the blade? You then fit the handle, and then what's the next step? Yeah, the, the the rubber grip is one of the last things. Then obviously when you've got the rubber grip on, and you've got to put your own uh, labels on to give your your name as a sponsor of Solitaire Cricket or Gunnamore or Duncan Furnace, whichever bat it is, sort of thing. So that gives it the finish, and obviously it's waxed to make it a nice finish, and it looks presentation wise. What sort of wax do you use, Roger? Um, I use beeswax. And that, what does that give it? Protection against the weather? Or, or what's the actual idea of doing that? 
it seals it from the from the weather really but it is a big presentation for him because obviously if you see a nice shiny bass it looks better in a in a quite a dull one sort of thing but it is a water protection as well beeswax so the water doesn't get into the wood my bats are made to order so people ring me up or send me an email nowadays or text me and I meet them, they come around to my, my workshop and, and we'll make a bat and show them the willow, what he'd like to pick sort of thing, because there's a different willow. Some's got bigger grains in, some's got smaller grains in, a bit of red in the heartwood. But everybody's different, so no cricket bat is the same. You can't make two bats the same. Everyone's different, by just a little bit. Roger, what's the most famous batsman that uses solitaire bats? Obviously, I've got to say my son's the, the most famous one. He, he plays at Kidderminster Cricket Club and he uses my bats and he goes out there and pushes the word out sort of thing. But I've got a lot of Worcestershire players in the local clubs use them sort of thing, so I couldn't really say he was a famous one, but I haven't got to the, the test match standard yet, which is maybe an aim one day. A couple of years ago, a, a guy rang me up and he wanted a, a bat made, and it was for partial blind, for the England blind team. They, they, they come to Worcester to play a game, and he come round to my house and I made him a bat sort of thing. And it was just lighter in a normal bat as well, because obviously they've got to pick the bat up not so much and they don't know where the ball is. It's all played by sand with the ball, got bowels in sort of thing, and that's where they played. But it was a lighter bat, that was all the difference. But he, he's still using it as I know. John Reynolds there with a fascinating insight into the manufacture of the cricket bat. While we're on the subject of making things, Brian has an article from The Telegraph about slate house signs. Tucked between the jagged peaks of Honister Pass in the Lake District, the last working slate mine in England still rumbles with activity. Graham Robson, a former cabinet maker, joined Honister Slate Mine in 1999. Robson specialises in making slate house signs a best-selling item in the mine shop. Each starts out as part of a massive lump of slate and is cut into slabs using an electric saw. Depending on the quality, the slate will either be used for kitchens and roofing slates or made into smaller pieces for house signs, he explains. Next, Robson polishes the slate using a machine with diamond-studded discs. He then cuts the slate to the shape and size of the sign and engraves it with the house name or number, either by sandblasting it or using an engraving machine. The finished sign is coated in a stone sealant to protect against weathering. It's a quality British material. A roof tile can last 300 years, he says. We don't know whether Raven's Wing even displays a house sign, but even without one, you'll remember that that is the name of the rambling Victorian house inherited by the heroine of our story this month. The cargo washed ashore from a stricken freighter is of great interest, not only to the police, but to some of the local residents as well. Winston, the barista from London, Toby Pendine, a local fisherman, and Lucy's own caretaker, Nicholas. When Lucy's breakfast is interrupted by a visit from the police, matters soon come to a head in the last instalment of Angela Lanyon's 
surprise inheritance. Lucy heard Nicholas crossing the chequered tiles of the hall and went to join him. Recognising one of the officers from the previous day, she asked what was wrong. Although surprised to see her, they said they were looking for items that had disappeared from the wreck and asked if she had seen anything. Lucy hesitated. She didn't want to get anyone into trouble and she had to admit to herself that she'd taken rather a shine to Winston. He'd been quite open about his East End background and that his grandmother had come over on the Windrush and married a Londoner. She had wondered what he was doing down here, but she believed what he told her. Lucy had always tried to think the best about people, but then on the other hand. And if she admitted she'd been on the beach last night, would the police think that she'd taken stuff? Reluctantly, Lucy confessed that she had been down on the beach the previous night, but I didn't see anyone, she told them. Well, that was true. She hadn't seen anyone. And after all, she didn't really know for certain it was Winston. She only guessed it from the wetsuit. Well, if you do hear anything or see anything suspicious, perhaps you'd let us know. The man handed her a card. My number. As he was leaving, he turned back. And whatever you do, no heroics. These people are dangerous. Panicking as usual. Nicholas said as the door closed behind them. You'd think we lived in the middle of a war zone. Lucy was puzzled by his dismissive attitude. They didn't say what they were looking for, she pointed out. <laughs> Who knows? He shrugged. Anyway, I'm off to Bodmin this morning. I don't know if you're wanting anything. We need cleaning materials and... And you need to do something to get rid of the mice. Lucy spoke sharply. She had a feeling that she needed to take control. Raven's wing was hers, and after all it was up to her to make decisions. They woke me up last night. Goodness knows what they were up to in the attics. A scowl quickly hidden crossed his face. He doesn't like being criticised, she thought, and asked if Janice were going with him. It's a nice day, she'll enjoy the run, and you might as well take advantage of the sunshine and get out for a while. Could be raining tomorrow. Half an hour later, Lucy stood at the front door and watched the car disappear down the drive. Turning back, the house should have felt empty, but it didn't. In a way, it would be nice to go out and leave the mess in the attics behind, and she hadn't really explored the area apart from going down to the village a couple of times. Of course, she had been on the beach, but from what the policemen said, if they were still around, perhaps it wouldn't be a good idea. Bringing out her mobile, she decided to call the solicitor. She needed to let him know she was settling in, and she wanted to clear up her position regarding Nicholas. He was beginning to make her feel uncomfortable, and she felt he resented her presence. However, she couldn't see herself living here on her own, and then there must be an alternative. The solicitor was away from the office, so she left a message. And who was Nicholas to tell her to go for a walk? Stuff that! And she wasn't a wimp to be deterred by some mice, even if they turned out to be rats. Lucy stared around the attics. She was sure things had been moved. There were still piles, but somehow they looked different. And what was in that stack of boxes? She was sure they'd not been there when she'd been up here the previous day. This was not the work of mice. 
her shoes gritted on the floor. Sand. And looking at the boxes again, something caught her eye. A piece of seaweed. Quickly, she pulled open the nearest box to see what was inside. Trainers. Brand new trainers. Opening the other boxes, she saw they were the same. Examining the outside, she was confronted with symbols and words in a foreign language. She couldn't see the police getting worked up about boxes of trainers, but if this was what they were looking for, she ought to let them know. She pulled her mobile out. Bother, no signal. It had been all right in the hall, but up here. She started down the stairs. Halfway down, she heard a door creak. She was not alone. Standing still, she strained to listen. There was silence. She held her breath. Suddenly, she was grabbed from behind and a hand clamped over her mouth. Don't move, don't say anything, and you'll be all right. Lucy knew the voice. Winston. She knew she ought to have told the police about him, but now it was too late. He was here. Helplessly, she was dragged into one of the empty bedrooms and the door closed. His grip relaxed and he put a finger to his lips. It's all right, he whispered. Just don't make a noise and you'll be safe. And stay in here. He moved to the door and opened it a crack. Before Lucy could make a move, there were shouts from down below and a cry of police, then feet thudding up the stairs. There were scuffles from the attics above and at last the door was flung open and an armed police officer gave the thumbs up. Later, Winston explained. The trainers were not as innocent as they looked. Each shoe concealed a sachet of heroin disguised as packaging. For the past six months since the house had been empty, it had been used by drug smugglers, and Winston was an undercover officer. His mixed-race ancestry had been an advantage. Who would suspect him? When Lucy arrived, everything was thrown into confusion. The police wondered if she were involved in the smuggling, and as far as the smugglers were concerned, she was in the way. Janice was related to the Pendines, and what was worse, Lucy discovered, she was also distantly related to herself. If Lucy had died, Janice would have been in a position to claim the inheritance. But what's happened to them? Nicholas has gone to Bodmin. Winston laughed. That's where he said he was going. He thought we'd all go tearing off after him and the rest of them could work undisturbed. We were waiting with a roadblock. He went on to explain that the smugglers had used the diving school as a distribution point. The shop sells a lot of trainers. And I suppose those were the black devil's old Mrs. Twin saw. He nodded and Lucy sighed. I suppose you'll be going back to London now. Winston smiled. Maybe I quite fancy the idea of a transfer to the Devon and Cornwall police. Surprise Inheritance was written and read by Angela Lanyon with music by David Hillovitz. And that brings us to the end of this New Year's edition of the Worcester Talking magazine. David and Sylvia Day will be copying and Carol is our administrator. We'll be back in May, so until then, it's goodbye from me, Sue. And from me, Brian. And from me, Patrick. 
And it's goodbye from me, Jenny, and wishing you all a very happy new year.